Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hog Butcher Radio Hour, part two of my conversation with Christian Stolte. You may know him as Mouch on Chicago Fire, or that really bad guy in Law Abiding Citizen, or any number of other people he's played. If you missed the last installment, you missed Chris talking about the fight scene he never had with Harrison Ford, about the time Mel Gibson didn't shoot him but did cut him out of the movie, about getting the role of Mouch on Chicago Fire, and about how he really isn't a network television star, even though he's one of the stars of a network television show. So if you missed that, go back an episode. It's all there waiting for you. A word on this episode. Ultimately, we talk about Paul Newman and Dick Wolf and about the movies that inspired Chris to want to be an actor— and also about the experience of working on a hit TV show like Chicago Fire. But at the top, we talk a little bit about a web series we both work on with our friend actor, writer, and improviser David Pasquese. And since most people probably aren't familiar with it, I think a little background might be in order here. It's called The Graveyard Show, and we like to refer to it as the best little web series that nobody's ever seen. It's a little comic strip of a series about a security guard and a janitor who work the overnight hours in an office building. All the episodes take place around the security desk in the lobby. It's kind of like Charlie Brown and Lucy at the psychiatrist's desk. If you haven't seen it, you can see all the episodes we've done so far at thegraveyardshow.com. And sorry for the self-serving, self-promotional nature of all this, but we love doing this little web series, and there was no not talking about it in a conversation with Chris. Okay, without further ado... Part two of my conversation with the great Christian Stolte, actor, writer, raconteur, and mensch. I'm Ron Lazaretti, and this is the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. I saw you and Dave in the Mammoth Festival play that you mentioned. Um, and I also, you guys were in a, a film that we did together, a little independent film called Something Better Somewhere Else. And you were in a couple of different, there are four stories, you were in a couple of them, Dave was in a couple of them, but you were in one together where you were next door neighbors and he's moving out of his house and you guys uh, are obviously friends and there's a few little scenes, but they're not terribly consequential. It's just you kind of talking and you guys having what appears to be a really genuine kind of next-door neighbor friendship. Yeah, I felt like those moments served as just a little glimpse of what they were leaving behind. Yes, exactly. That's great. And and the story is about a family that's moving, but it, it, suddenly there's great regret over this, and, and it's, it, it's become like a tooth extraction. At any rate, in the little scenes that you and Dave had together, I just remember I was with an editor friend who was putting it together, Steve Morrison, and I was just saying, you know, I know this scene, we shouldn't spend too much time, but I could watch these two guys all day long. And he said, I know what you're talking about. There's just something. So that kind of led to us talking down the road about trying to do something together. And basically the three of us with you and Dave uh, starring in it. And that, that's what led us to the Graveyard Show. Do you want to say anything about how, we, how you re- recall that coming into being? Well, I think... Uh... Yeah, when I think about like the discussion stages of it, I feel like you really did know what you wanted. And you just, we were sort of, and we were kind of going back and forth and we weighed several other possibilities and considered them pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. But it felt like we were both kind of like, because Dave and I, I, I think we were, I don't want to speak for him, but I was looking forward to this idea. 
pursuing this idea. Right. And I just thought, I don't know what uh, we're talking about doing yet, but the parameters that we've sort of established here sounds really appealing to me and it sounds kind of doable. It sounds like there wouldn't be too many obstacles in the way of getting this kind of thing done. And what's more fun than than creating comedy with David Pasquese? Mm-hmm. Um, I just watched one of his episodes of Veep. Yeah. Uh, I guess the one that just came up. Uh, Yesterday. Just, yeah. yeah. Oh, just kills me. Just yeah. kills me. Um, so yeah, excited about that. And then it felt like you were sort of it was almost like we were we were witness to you sort of coming out of a trance like when L. Ron Hubbard came back from his self-induced trance and 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 revealed OT3 to the world like very I, much like I, that but but that not to say not to say you would have come to the same conclusion if we weren't present for that like you could have just come to us and said I got this idea this guy's a night security guard the other guy's a night custodian lobby of a big office building and i don't think i would have needed to go down the other possible side roads or whatever i would have said yeah let's do exactly that but i think by exploring other options one of us was going to be stuck in a hole for how many episodes yeah the idea was that you were going to be uh it was kind of the billy wilder movie uh, ace in the hole right what you were i think it was you we're going to be a guy who wandered, maybe chasing a butterfly into a, <laughs> into an abandoned <laughs> mine shaft where the, it collapsed on you down below, and the only communication you had was with Dave. So uh-huh. it was you stuck in the mine shaft, and he is your only connection right. to humankind, right. Right. Um, who would come down and communicate with you through a little bit of a. Uh, look and, like a puppet and, show hole in that kind of scenario and the other one I wanted which was uh, uh, Dave Dave and I in deep space uh, right. the only two guys on a big cargo spaceship right. or something like right. that I still I've still not let go of that idea no I think but, that's uh, some juice in but it but to what extent could we just take the scripts that we have right now <laughs> and could have shot them right you know to what extent could we have shot them in those other scenarios and, and changed almost nothing. Yeah, it could be. Because that's really what it was about. We were looking for a vehicle for the two of you guys. And frankly, two guys in the middle of the night who have nobody but each other right. almost. to And to, not necessarily because they're the best of friends. No. Circumstances just brought this, this about. Right, right. But part of the appeal for me getting this little web series started that you could find at thegraveyardshow.com Um was the possibility of uh, collaborating. Because, I mean, at first I thought, I'll do anything. I'll write them all if they want. I don't care. I'll do it. But around that time, you were writing on Facebook, and you were writing sort of in character as somebody uh, slightly different than yourself. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, this guy is a writer. This actor is a writer. (laughs) And, And I said something to a casting director friend of ours, Mickey Pascal and I said, he's, you know, he's a writer. And she goes, oh, he's got plays, he's got this, he's got that. You, you should see. And I said, oh, that would be great. So the idea that we get to kind of share the load a little bit on these yeah. on these little episodes of these guys trying to get through the night in their mundane, uh, but you know, solid job. Um, that's kind of the that was kind of the thrust of all of it. And that's a great experience too, just to write you know it's it's outside my experience but to or was that we have to find this common ground you know if you've got 
eight guys, you, you got a bunch of writers that are going to write on Modern Family. You you don't want to feel the this is this writer's episode, or this clearly was written by this other writer over here. They have to they have to sort of share the share a reality. There has to be a consistency to the reality through all of it, and we do sort of play around and depart a little bit, and uh, and and have weird shifts in tone. But other than when I have the the experience of having written one of the episodes, I, when it's one of the other ones, there might be a reason I remember who wrote it, but it might also just be my best guess. My best guess is this is one of Ron's, you know. <laughs> Because we have sort of found that place. We know what, what is and is not a graveyard conversation. Right, right, yeah. And that's why sometimes there will be an organic conversation and we'll all sort of take note, that was a graveyard conversation. Or given the brevity of a graveyard episode, a, a brief exchange, that was an episode right there. Right. That exchange was an episode. <laughs> right. Now go find me a big prop to hold and let's <laughs> shoot it. <laughs> <coughs> Um, it's a real pleasure to do, and it's it, and again, it's it's an opportunity to work with guys who are stubbornly, yeah, still in this community, um, who kind of find each other to to, to hatch these kinds of things. Um, do you think there's do you think that there's some common thread that runs through all of us that has kind of kept us here doing these kinds of things that we try to control um versus going elsewhere or that's interesting because dave works everywhere right i mean he, he works routinely in new york uh seems to find work as an actor in italy uh, unlike you know most of us right very few of us find work in italy right uh he, he shoots in la wh wherever i mean he's he's sort of a i don't know i mean he you wouldn't. You wouldn't if you saw Dave in one thing, another thing, and caught it, caught him doing a scene here. You wouldn't assume necessarily know that's a Chicago guy. So I feel like for him, he's chosen to make Chicago his home, but it has not restricted where he is working at all. Right. Uh, whereas I've chosen to stay here, and mostly work here. Once in a while, I'll shoot somewhere else, but almost always, it, it was I auditioned for it here. You know, they shoot. They shot Law Abiding Citizen in Philadelphia, but I did all of my auditioning here. Um, yeah, and I think though, I think whatever that common thing is that we're all here, um, we're kind of dug in, and then there's some sort of elusive, abstract common goal, and we find each other. And we just know we none of us knows how to say it. None of us knows the name for it. But we know we're kind of there's this thing we all want. Let's figure out what the hell it is, and figure out if there's any way we three, you know, can can make it real. I think that happens in a lot of weird different combinations. I think there was probably that kind of thing with T.J. and Dave first. I mean, you've read right. their read their book, so you kind of know how that happened. But. Uh, a recognition there's some kind of recognition in the people that you become friends with i think being in this business we're in a different situation than most adults as far as making new friends as an adult i think in a lot of lives that's that's tends to happen less and less the older you get where you just make a new friend 
but we're all over the place, you know. We, we're working with new people all the time and the, the people who you, you get to know their past, you have this weird shared history or we both know these people. There's always connections. Everybody has shared friends or whatever and you find yourself in the company of new other grown men who are your friends now, you know, and and, the, and you've all lived lives at this point, you know. You, you've, you've met at the point where if any of you died tomorrow, I'd be like, hey, he had a pretty full life, you know. <laughs> You're actually old enough. It just wouldn't be tragic if you died just based on your age alone, you know. Oh, Jesus. That, did, did I accidentally just drag something ugly into it? I think so. But, yeah, I, I, and, I, and I appreciate that. Whatever that abstract thing is, I feel like Kurt Vonnegut had to, explored that whole concept um I, I forget what the language of it was but it had to do with bokanonism or whatever you recognize that somebody is is part of your caress or something like that i think you're right on both of those yeah Boca, what did you say bokanonism i think the, that's the right religion first mentioned in <laughs> cat's wrong. cradle and i think it comes up later but yeah that we understand we are on some mission together, even though we just now met. We both, there's something, someplace we're both going or trying to get to. Yeah, it's like a tribe thing. Yeah. Um, so given the show, that you, well, first of all, you, I would sense a, a ton of camaraderie on a show like the one that you do. Oh, yeah. You know, you're, that's got to be a close-knit group. And, you know, films, television, you do, it is a little bit like going to camp with people mm -hmm. did have you had experiences in the past like on films that you shot whether it's i don't know road to perdition or public enemy or something like that where you really yeah in a film it would depend on my level of involvement that where i was on, I'm, I'm barely in the movie public enemies but um but i worked on it for months and months and i was in the company of the same guys for for months and and it was a great group of guys who was in that group uh it was steven dorf jason clark david wenham and johnny depp um and other guys that kind of floated in here and there mike view was with us for a while uh james russo was part of it for a while you know it just following the story of these guys you know these guys are coming and shoot these scenes because they were here for this amount of time um, and yeah, so that did become that that did have a similar sort of summer camp. We shared this thing, uh, prison break. I guess I was on that long enough to get that. But if you just show up for a few days, you've got sure. a scene in a movie. You're not getting a taste of that. In theater, you get that all the time. In theater, you see somebody you haven't seen in ten years, but you did a show with them, so you were with them for six tight months. You know, and you had the shared experience of whatever the struggles were in producing this play. And that kind of, well, we're still brothers. You know what I mean? We, 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 only you and I, only this select group of people know what that specific thing was like. Have you had productions like that where because of that intimacy you struggled because you really had a hard time? either with another actor or oh, director. Yeah. Oh, of or, course. Or... Of course. And, and that's why it, I shouldn't even, I shouldn't discuss Chicago Fire without, I, I shouldn't fail to mention that I've never experienced anything like this just in terms of the people that I get to work with. People I get to go to work with are just the most agreeable, enjoyable, the funniest people. I'm talking crew, cast. Uh, they're really, this is very unusual. They're, is nobody on my job who anyone has to tiptoe around. 
there's nobody who makes the day more difficult. There's nobody who we all have to roll our eyes because I got to work with this guy today. We don't have any prima donnas. We don't have any head cases. That would seem impossible. It seems impossible. Especially a cast that size. You look, and, and just look at number one, two, and three on our call sheet of Jesse Spencer, Taylor Kinney, and Eamon Walker, each of whom have huge followings, have pretty big careers, uh, and just the sweetest, easygoing guys. None of them ever pulling any sort of star crap. None of them throwing their weight around unless it's in a good cause, unless it's for the good of the show or for the good of some member of, of the cast or some underling or somebody. They'll stand up for them and put their foot down. But no nothing, no moment that ever makes you uncomfortable because somebody's, I don't want to say going Christian Bale. I, I don't know if that's fair to him or not. I don't know the ins and outs of that circumstance. But nobody's had to endure anything like that on our show. It, it, it is it is something I have to remind myself of to appreciate that. Yeah, that's a big deal. It's a huge deal. And we are all really good friends. We hang out when we're not working. You know, we vacation together and stuff like that. They're all very good companies. See, now that seems like, uh, I think I was listening to a Mark Marin podcast and he was asking Julia Louis-Dreyfus maybe, do you ever see so-and-so and so Do you socialize with them and all that? And she kind of indicated that she doesn't really socialize a lot with the people that she's worked with. Not that she doesn't. No, has any yeah, problems. it, it, it just, wouldn't mean anything. It just, wouldn't indicate a problem if you didn't. But it's kind of you, on the other hand, talk about going on vacation together. Yeah, that seems rare. Yeah, we some. I mean, I, I, by, by is it the nature of it? The fact that you're sort of portraying these guys who are kind of an all for one, one for helps. all kind of. It, it helps for sure. But we also, of course, we have to mock what we're doing. You know what I mean? As 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 sort of smart asses, you know, as sort of ne'er do well artists, we have to do it, and at the same time, kind of make fun of ourselves for for doing it. And you know, the fact that Severide is this improbable superhero, you know, we'll all burst into a rousing song of Severide here to say, you know, whatever. Right. We we mock what we're doing as we're doing it, but that's just sort of to get that out of the way. Right. Do you know what I mean? So that we don't take ourselves real seriously and lose the fun. I think our show's kind of fun uh, in, in a way that I, I think permeates the end product. I think you kind of feel it in the end product that we are actually having a good time doing this. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot of cliffhanger you know, elements to it. But uh, It's not hyper-realistic, though. So it's not that it doesn't play believable, but it's not... Um, no, I know what you're saying. There's kind of like, uh, you know... I mean, I hesitate to say like soap opera, but it's got that kind of you know when something's a, a little bit of a piece, it 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 it, it has a tone to it that is melodramatic. Yes, yes, yeah. And everybody, that was something that I it took me a minute to get used to on the show was that like melodrama as a choice, you right. know, um, which is interesting to me. I, I I wasn't a big follower of Law and Order, so I'm not sure. But it feels tonally a little bit different to me. I think so too. My wife watches that show, so I, I've seen pieces of it, but I've never really seen it. And no, as I a never. result, I feel like all these other shows now, now he's created sort of another, you know, uh, another group of shows that have a slightly different genre mm-hmm. kind of feel to them, even though you would see them as being very analogous. Right. It feels like he's created a whole other yeah kind of type of show i i can tell more popcorn to it or something yeah i think so and yeah all by design of course i mean when i i think 
to evaluate movies and, and TV shows, things like that, I always try to bear in mind what I think they were going for. Right. You know, and I, and I try to evaluate based on how close did they come to the mark. Um, and, and I think that's maybe that's kind of how Ebert operated too. Just because he gave two movies three stars doesn't mean that they were equal. Right. You know, that's right. As movies. It was like they came this close to making what they were trying to make, in his opinion. Um, but I think the choices that you're talking about, uh, the, the elements of melodrama, the elements of soap opera, are probably really wise choices um, for a couple of reasons. For one, to, to make, in a, in a way, our, our show's a little bit of a throwback. I mean, it, it, it lives in the modern world, but there's a, some of this, the values, the storytelling values in it, are, are from in the last generation of dramas, in a way. I, I think we hold up better than a lot of those, but what, what people are familiar with, you know, and I think it helps, it, our audience isn't exclusively older by any means, but I know that the older people are able to relate to our show because it feels like a show that they used to watch. That's interesting. And, I the, never thought of uh, it. and I think all of those things too, the, the, the melodrama, the, the, the relationship dramas and the, uh, and the accidents, the rescues, the fires, the crashes and all of that make this show very easy to export um to germany other countries whatever you know we're, we're big in in the uk we're big in in brazil we're big in germany there is a universality to a lot of that stuff i mean you see a a, a, a car teetering over the edge of a of a overpass you don't need anything explained to you if you're watching from frankfurt you know it's all pretty clear to you there's the, that's a universe we we know what's at stake we have an idea of what needs to be done. Let's see how these guys do it. Uh, and all, I think all of that has helped make this product an easy product. And maybe some, there'll be something lasting to it. Who knows? If it becomes one of those shows that uh, 20 years from now, the, the reruns hold up for whatever reason. I feel like it has a pretty good chance. Okay, now you've got this. And obviously, it's it's a wonderful thing. Do you, do you have a... I mean... And now what, you know, beyond the show, is there stuff that you would like to do, things that you plan on oh, doing? Oh, yeah, look, I mean, most of the guys I've played on TV uh, get killed or sent to jail or they, they screw up and, uh, you know, they last a couple episodes. So I was sort of, when I got to the end of the first season or I saw the, that the, the, the advanced scripts weren't going to kill me off, and I thought, I'm going to make it through a whole season and then two, and then three, and then four, and have been in every single episode. It all seems very unlikely to me, but I think in the back of my mind, I still think, well, this is what I'm doing right now. This is going to end. Everything, all, all jobs in my business end. Right. So this is what I'm doing right now. I'm not kidding myself. I mean, there, there could be a huge dry spell after this. I have no idea. And I don't even know what after this entails. We have a fifth season. No one has explicitly promised I'll live to the end of the fifth season. Right. And, and I know I can't count on that. So if it ends tomorrow. If it ends tomorrow, it's been the sweetest ride I and, could have imagined. And then what do you do? Uh, more stage work you, you probably haven't done theater in a while yeah I think I would I would do stage work probably not right away right away I would probably uh, if it ended tomorrow literally tomorrow then as soon as my daughter finished school for the summer I would say let's just go be gone for a while let's let's make a let's plan a really expansive vacation 
and just not be obligated to do anything for a while, uh, which would be fine with me. I don't even know what a while means, but a while. Right. Uh, and then start, you know, I've got buddies that have written some scripts and whatever and saying, I know a lot of people. Now I wonder if we can get this made or get, you know, and put myself back out there for auditioning, which I barely remember how to do. Um, I would look forward to whatever the next thing is. I would miss this job tremendously. But I think as we sit outside for, you know, 12 hour days in our bunker coats, you know, sweating our asses off or freezing our balls off, whichever it is, what's ever been dealt up that day. I think we'll talk for long hours about, you know, whatever the next job is that I get, it's going to be easier than this. There's going to be less sort of physical labor to it than this. And I won't, I won't be endure. you know, every, this, this business is tedious. It really is. The time it takes to get a simple thing done, it, it's eternal. It's no one's fault. It's just how things are. Everyone on our show does their job very well, but that doesn't mean we're not sitting around for hours going, what are we waiting for right now? What are we, <laughs> does anybody remember what we're doing right now? Because it's not our job to know. Sure. You know, we just get dragged in when they're ready for us. But uh, we all, we all, we're all aware that uh, we're one of the harder work. You know, Truck Eighty One specifically on our show, we're one of the harder working groups of people, just in terms of the actual physical experience of doing your job. It's got to be harder than most of the, not harder than the crew, mind you, but harder than most of the actors you see. I'd say ninety percent of the of what you see in a movie or on TV, they, they got it pretty breezy compared to us even the other shows pd and med you know i, I poke fun of the med guys it's like uh, uh nick elfus is like oh nick you had an outside scene how was that <laughs> he's at some cafe talking to somebody briefly and it's, he's got a jacket on it looks a little windy like, i didn't know i had no idea how you suffered I mean, those guys are inside all the time in their little groups probably working three days per episode or whatever we're working eight days per episode so their their experience of this, I think, is much more of what people think in terms of like the oh, big Hollywood star, you know. That is that your family or mine? <laughs> I think it's yours. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. I we, like we. I like the air of reality. Yeah, that's a, that's a child and probably her friend. Yes. Um. Okay, I think they've been herded away by my wife. <laughs> oh, maybe not. Hi, sweetie. We're doing a podcast. Sorry. Hey, it's okay. Hey, um. Yeah, we're almost done. First of all, I got to ask, I meant to ask before, uh, You were, didn't you do Road to Perdition? I did. Paul Newman. Paul Newman. So can you tell me, am I justified in my worship of Paul Newman? Uh, I won't pretend that my experience was any bigger than what it was. Okay, what was it? I. That's another movie. That, the funny thing about that movie for me is that's when letterboxing and full screen was sort of like a big thing in play and people right. were, people took sides and whatever and blood was shed. Uh, I don't even know if I'm in the full frame version of that movie. I think you have to be watching it in letterbox. Which for, everybody for does now. I hope so. Yes. Like there's a scene at the table, uh, this long table and all the, all the lieutenants of the mob are gathered around and Daniel Craig is sitting there being a, you know... A, uh, ne'er-do-well son and Newman slams his hand down on the table and everyone's sort of startled and whatever it, it, you're looking down the table and if it's not full if it's not uh widescreen I'm not in it anymore 
literally it makes a difference of, of him in the movie. I, and I did them I mean, in quite a few scenes, but sure. a lot of them it's dark, it's rainy, right. whatever. There's a there's an umbrella that in the rain Tom Hanks rips the Tommy gun through the umbrella. I know? remember that. That's my I own that umbrella. That was me. That was my character's death. But you just got to take my word for it. Although I do still have the umbrella. Um, but so there was time with Paul Newman. And there's a the wake scene that the movie right, opens with, right. and Paul seen Paul uh, Newman is standing around with uh, John Judd and me and uh, John Sierros and maybe Craig Spidel, handful of Chicago guys, and he's telling the filthiest jokes uh, with great gusto, um, and they there seems to be a theme of bestiality to them the, to the <laughs> jokes, but it was it's a very playful reference, a playful to beast- bestiality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. but it, I think that was just sort of one joke reminded him of this joke of you know, I don't think he was obsessed with that. I don't not of alleging <laughs> that at all. Um, but Newman's own bestiality. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see any way to make money for the hole in the wall gang <laughs> via bestiality. Um, but this, the the one story I tell that I think if if there's anything I observed that tells me something about Paul Newman, we were shooting, we were out on the Warner Brothers lot in L.A. for a week, um, and we were shooting a few scenes, but specifically the big scene in the rain where Tom Hanks comes back, guns us all down, and then kills Paul Newman. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> um and we're and they were doing a rain test. They had you know the whole the, we're on this block. It's all like fake cobblestone streets. It's all it's 1930s, I believe. And they're doing a a, a rain test. The rain tower is you know a, out of sight, but it's way the hell up there. And they're watching the rain come down. They're checking it for camera and all this stuff. And I find myself under an awning with uh, Paul Newman and his his assistant, who is a sort of matronly lady. I believe a few years older than me. Um, and, and and you could tell she was used to taking care of him. And this was the exchange. It was uh, something like, uh, well, what about in that stack of papers in my trailer, the stack of papers uh, that's right next to the couch there? You didn't just move all of that, right? No, I haven't, Paul, but I'm going to check it. As soon as we're done here, I'm going to go check it. Because what I'm worried about is it got stuck in a magazine or something, and, and, and then I'd not be able to find it. And she goes, I'm going to find it for you. I, I'll, I'll look, and then I'll, I'll stay in touch and let you know where I've looked, and if we don't find it in the trailer, we'll think of where else it might be. Because I promised that guy I would sign that picture and get it back to him, uh, and, and, and I, I want to make sure you that you have his address because there's an envelope with his address and what is some bar owner in Kentucky somewhere uh, who who was a racing fan, and, and he wanted a picture of Paul uh, with his car, autographed picture to hang in his bar in, in somewhere in, in Covington, I'm, I'm thinking it was. Um, and, and this is on this man's mind. He is genuinely concerned that the the autographed picture that the that he was the guy's address and all this stuff was not was was lost and, the, and then what he told the guy he would do it and now what's he supposed to do this is what's on this man's mind and i thought wow he has somehow really retained his humanity that's pretty great uh, the, the, there's something just weird and i thought i and then i started wondering do i just assume that any star is just somehow the the relationships and the ins and outs of life and these little things are beneath them or is he an exception is he an exceptional man i kind of think he might have been right 
I've heard I've heard similar things. I, I know it. how easy it would be, be for me to blow off the fact that I forgot some picture away, you know, and I'm nobody. But I would forgive myself instantly. He was not willing to forgive himself if he misplaced <laughs> that that racing photo. A friend of mine who was working on Color of Money had similar kinds of stories. So I I bet that he's pretty consistent. He seemed like a dec- he seemed like a man with the kind of decency. Hank seems like that kind of guy too. I don't yes. know what he was like on that. A, uh, a more playful version of that, but but also maybe cut from a similar cloth. Maybe both guys who recognize the pitfalls of of being who they are and where they are in the business and how easy it would be to be perceived as a jackass. Right. Well, our, our, our friend Mr. Pasquazi worked with Hanks on uh, the Ron Howard movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, Angels and Demons. Right, yeah. right, and... Uh, yeah, I said the same about Hanks. Yeah. He's not going to be the guy that anyone can accuse of being that kind of asshole right. celebrity. Right. That's still probably not easy. It's probably not easy and it also if you have to if it means checking certain behavior, but you also get the feeling it's not in their nature. Right. to That's, be that guy. Yeah. You know, you you um you strike me as an act, you know, as an actor you come off like I I'll say like a Gene Hackman uh that, that don't get excited. I'm not going to like, but you know, Gene Hackman, Spencer Tracy. I'm trying to think of a couple other guys that are like that guys who, when I see them pull it off so well in a sense, because they don't look like guys who would act Mm -hmm. like who, like they look like guys who would think acting is bullshit. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like when you were talking about you and Dave laughing at uh, the kind of the ridiculousness of pretending this or that, like, you have a little bit of that to me, kind of like a little bit of that working man kind of uh, down-to-earth, regular guy, not necessarily someone who you would expect to see in movies or TV shows. Uh, yeah, I do have a little bit of lingering disdain for or aspects of this business that that where suddenly someone is so precious because they someone's so important people are granted such importance based on especially in a position like mine where I haven't really accomplished anything it's one thing to talk to a director or a writer who who wrought this this work of art but I'm just a guy that got hired do you know what I mean I'm pretty I good at, agree, I'm pretty good what at what I do uh no better than 10 local guys that I could name off the top of my head who could just as easily and just as well have done this job. So it's not anything that I'm, I, I, I need accolades for. The accolades are getting the job. That's the reward, you know? So I, I, I have that in perspective, I think. I, I'm, I'm not saying I'm not, there's no skill or no talent involved in it. There is, but it's, it's talent that's fairly easy to come by. I, I'm a guy that got a really good job, um, but I think it it did take for me seeing certain people who I respected and admired, seeing that they take this seriously, for me to understand that this is a thing that can be taken seriously. And I do make fun of it all the time, but I do have respect for it as well. And that sort of learned, you know, that was a learned thing. I, I, I fixated on various movies through the years, and they wouldn't even be likely. They wouldn't even be movies that would make necessarily make sense to you, as far as movies that influenced me. But for one reason or another, I would watch certain movies, 
Name that, one. Uh, uh, Thief with James Caan. Ordinary People. Um, Gorky Park. Wow. Just movies that I would watch. William and Hurt? William yeah. Hurt and Brian Dennehy. Um, movies that in some way made me want to do this. And it would just be a performance that was... I can't even put my finger on it. I don't know if William Hurt was particularly good in Gorky Park. Now, 30 years later, I haven't seen it in forever. I just remember something about what he was doing in that movie captivated me. And, and I think he's, he's quite good. I'm not, I'm not disparaging him after the fact now. But uh, And almost every performance in Ordinary People was, was riveting to me. You know... Uh, Donald Sutherland, Timothy Hutton, Judd Hirsch, Mary Tyler Moore, Elizabeth McGovern. I thought all of them. I th- there, there was something about that. I think it came out in 1980, maybe, somewhere in there. That sounds about right. Yeah, the, the, something about that movie. And again, I haven't watched it in quite a while. I watched it with my older daughter maybe 10 years ago. Um, and, and it still held up, but or, or did it hold up? Or was it just my, my nostalgic sort of affection for it is still there? You know the scene in that movie that still hits me? When he and Elizabeth McGovern are at McDonald's, yeah, and he, and she's very sweet, and he feels comfortable, and he allows himself to reveal something about himself. He becomes vulnerable and tells her something that's very personal. And then, and then a group of kids, unwittingly, just kind of come in acting Not like bad balls. Kids. Not bad. Nothing. Kids. No, just, just goofing around. Bad timing. They come through. They kind of make her giggle. And it ruins everything. It cuts the moment in half. Yeah. The way, you know, I mean, I guess what I'm, the reason I even bring it up is from an actor's perspective, I could see how that would be exciting to think about being in a scene like that where you're going to convey that feeling that, like, yeah. Uh, the range of, I feel comfortable enough to make myself vulnerable. Right. And then the huge disappointment of, that is an actor's film in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, yeah. the scene, it's I, just the fact that she giggles. That's that's yes, kind that's of, what it is because she breaks the spell of her concern for him. Mm-hmm. And I know, not to get off on an ordinary people tear because I don't think about that movie that often. But there's also a great story about how Donald Sutherland <clears throat> was not happy with the way they played a scene where she, she comes down the stairs and he's sitting alone in the kitchen or the oh, dining I remember room. That scene very well. And he says, I don't know if I can do this anymore, essentially. Yes. And um, apparently that was originally played with him uh, kind of bawling, you know, in tears and and kind of just trying to He does to break down a little bit at the out. end of it. But he apparently contacted Redford many months later and said, it's it's really bothering me. We I think we did that wrong. And he said, no, no, I think it's good. And he said, no, I, I, I think it would play much better if when she comes down, he's semi-cried out already. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't have that much left mm-hmm. to cry. And apparently Redford decided to go back. They rebuilt that, just that kind of yeah. through the doorway for him. And I that, remember the shots. Yeah. yeah. And and they did that. I, I suspect they made a wise choice. Yeah, me too. But it was pretty cool because it also it probably took an actor director, right, to, to acknowledge that that was to think if he's valid. that. Well, I, I, maybe that's not fair to say, but I would think it was easier for an actor director mm-hmm. to be able to understand that he might 
might want to pay attention to what Sutherland yeah, was feeling. Yeah, and, and there's, he asks a couple of questions almost casually because he's already decided. Yeah, yeah. It's a really... I have to go see that movie again yeah. now. But he, he asks her in a very detached way, do you love me? Yes, yes. Uh, almost like right. it doesn't matter what your answer is. I'm just curious. Yes, or do you think what you do, you know, with regard to, like, do you think that's love? Right. <laughs> what you yeah. feel yeah. for me? Yeah, yeah. He says, I don't know if you can love anybody. Right. After the, after the son had died. Right. Yeah, that's a great, uh, maybe I want to watch it again too. So are you saying that's the kind of movie that inspired you to I don't want even, to act? I don't know if it's a kind of movie. I can't even follow the thread of the movies that I'm talking about right now. Like I said, Thief is somewhere in there, too. But you have that kind of range to some degree. Like, I don't think you've done, you've done more and more comedy, it seems to me, or maybe you were doing just as much before, but you're no. certainly doing more. You did the, uh, the Onion min, uh, mini uh, the Lake, web series. Lake Dredge Appraisal. Lake Dredge Appraisal, which was obviously a... A funny thing graveyard you're hilarious yeah, it's just unfocused i'm just unfocused but are you i mean i think you have kind of an interesting range which may be why you can't put a thread through all the movies that affect you that way because there's a lot of different kinds yeah, of things it, that it, yeah it turns out it's easy to surprise people it turns out you know because you would know enough to not think there's any big deal about doing something as as occasionally like funny as graveyard but then to also play a horrible bad guy rapist murderer in right. a movie but there are people who just feel like that that's a, a spectacular accomplishment i don't even think of that as as range really you know they're almost the same guy well thank you so much you thank know you, I, I generally cut these endings off too so this happy, so what we're saying right now probably probably never, never because normally i cut it out on something you said uh, oh, okay, yeah. And then is there a music? Is there a little... Then music creeps music in. Music comes in. All right. All right, so we're essentially done. All right, that concludes part two of our conversation with Christian Stolte. What a delightful and entertaining fellow he is. My thanks to Chris for sitting still that long for us. Watch him in Chicago Fire and watch him in The Graveyard Show at thegraveyardshow.com. Now, just a song before we go. Last week, we played a track by Terry White. Well, since this is a two-parter, I think another song by Terry is in order. Again, off his record, Cannonball Fodder. This one is called With You and You and You. Take care, everybody, and thanks for listening.
Not too far down this train line Please forgive me if I hurt 